Hey everyone, Alex here. This is one of my last episodes here on Astro Soundbites, and while that makes me feel a lot of feelings, it also means there's room for an enthusiastic new grad student to take my place as co-host. We took a little extra time to make this episode outstanding, and you should do the same with your application. With this in mind, we've extended the application deadline one week to April 21st at 11.59pm Eastern Time. So get those applications in ASAP, and we can't wait to meet all of you. Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. If you'd like to do the same, we hope you apply to join us as co-host. But regardless of who's doing it, we'll still call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 72, A Trip to the Optometrist. And what better place than the optometrist to discuss lenses at home and out there in the universe? Sir Isaac Newton actually first proposed the bending of light by gravity in his book on optics in the 1700s, over 300 years ago by conceptualizing light as a particle. He called it the corpuscular theory, right? The corpuscular theory, exactly. That light is comprised of, what, corpuscules? (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) What exactly is a corpuscule? A little particle. Yeah, some unit of light. But we now know that not only does lensing take place at some of the largest scales, but that we can also take advantage of that lensing to learn more about the universe. That's, in my opinion, one of the coolest facts of astrophysics. Now, let's get into some intro questions. First, what is gravitational lensing? Gravitational lensing is basically the bending of light around some sort of massive or not-so-massive object. We can think about this as a bending of light around galaxy clusters on the large scale or just around our own sun or another star. I'm glad you mentioned scales in mass because I wanted to ask what distinguishes microlensing, weak lensing, and strong lensing because I've heard the three tossed around a lot. We should really call one of them macro lensing. <laughs> macro lensing? I love that. <laughs> So there are three different scales. I'll start off from largest to smallest. So first we have strong lensing. This is typically by some sort of massive object like a galaxy cluster, so huge, lensing background galaxies. With strong lensing, you'll end up getting really interesting and very strong effects of this gravitational lensing. 
if you've ever heard of an Einstein ring where you have maybe some background object that gets smeared and you end up having a circle instead of it looking like a dot. But you can also get this stretching of background galaxies as well, or they can show up in different places. So maybe you'll have one background galaxy and then you see it four different times because of strong lensing. And then weak lensing is similar to strong lensing. However, the effects are different. So the lens itself for weak lensing is just as massive as strong lensing, but you might see a little bit of stretching or it might be slightly brighter or something like that, but you're not going to see, you know, multiple objects and extremely elongated galaxies. And then microlensing is a little bit different. So microlensing occurs with small objects like stars, and these are very, very weak lenses in comparison to strong or even weak lensing. What happens with this is you might have a star or something passing by, and typically this is referred to in terms of detecting exoplanets, but you'll see a brightness increase of the star that you're looking at as the star and a, potentially a planet passes behind the host star and it gets lensed, which means it gets slightly brighter, but nothing too crazy. You would only be able to notice if you were observing this star for a long time. Awesome. Okay, so is it fair to say that the differences between microlensing and both weak and strong lensing are intrinsic? They have to do with the mass of the lens, whereas the difference between weak and strong lensing are observational in that something to do with, for example, the alignment might give you not a perfect Einstein ring or not an Einstein cross, not very strong images, but you still have the same or comparable size of the lens. That's exactly right. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Very cool. Between the three types, which is the most common? The most common by far is weak lensing. Okay. That's because in an individual case, it's hard to even tell that a galaxy is being lensed if it's weakly lensed because it may be slightly preferentially stretched in one direction but it's really hard to see these are small and distant anyway so it's really an aggregate that you see there is sort of a almost a polarization of the field of the background galaxies caused by the foreground lenser hmm. so we know of a lot of weak lensing cases and studying them in aggregate leads to a lot of efforts to understand the history of the universe, galaxy formation, evolution, a lot of other pieces of cosmology. Strong lensing, there are only a few hundred galaxy-galaxy lenses known, and then galaxy cluster lenses, even fewer. So each one is sort of an individual anomaly. It's a cool thing to explore. And in the most extreme case, we keep going back to it over and over again so we can learn new science. Microlensing, I think there have been a few hundred exoplanets discovered via microlensing where you get the star causing a lensing bump in the background image and then a planet causing a secondary bump and you can say oh there's got to be something there another little lensed piece so there are a good number of those but they tend to be unpredictable and non-repetitive so unlike the strong lenses which we go back to over and over again microlensing we only get to see once because the masses of the lenses are so small in microlensing, the timescales involved for those events to take place is significantly shorter than in weak or strong lensing. Is that right? Right, right. It's the proper motion. The things are actually moving in space 
and causing the lensing in that case. Whereas in the case of strong lensing, the things are so far away, there's really so little motion to be detected. Okay, and my last question, why is lensing valuable scientifically? Uh, okay, so each of the lensing classes is used somewhat differently. For example, I mentioned in strong lensing, there aren't that many of these, but individually they're really powerful. You can use them to measure the mass of the lens, which is a great tool. And you can also, interestingly for the best cases, use the time delay of the different images passing around the lens in different directions to do cosmology and say, okay, we know what the path length should be. We know what time we would expect to see. Differences in that would be due to differences in our understanding of cosmology, differences in the Hubble constant. So it's a great check on other ways of measuring the Hubble constant. There's some dubiousness about its reliability, but the hope is that with, with James Webb, with more and more of these strong lensing events discovered, they're going to be able to produce as reliable measurements as the most popular CMB and supernova measurements for the Hubble constant. Weak lensing, as I said, it, it really is about the aggregation. So it's more about determining the specific mass distribution. You don't have to assume any shape in the lenser. The gravity field of the lens can be inferred through weak lensing, which is really useful. You can think of each background galaxy as like a test particle coming through in a slightly different way, giving you a shape of the field of gravity in the lenser. There are some efforts to constrain dark matter and dark energy with this, but that's still very early. And then as I mentioned, microlensing, the coolest thing you can do is discover planets. But you can also discover binary stars, measure properties of the stars. Mass is always a good one. So all have good scientific value and growing. That's awesome. It seems like lensing is used in almost every sub-discipline of astrophysics. Well... I don't know if I'd go that far. Save it for the discussion. It's now time for our first astrobite, where Kirsten is going to tell us about the types of lenses that 55 people picked out during their annual eye exams. You know, 55 is an important number. Anybody know why? No. 55 people signed the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> Probably not the same people. No, I, I would hope not. <laughs> Sorry, Kirsten, please. <laughs> yeah, so the title of this astrobite is called How Good Are Humans at Visually Identifying Gravitational Lenses? And it's written by Lucas Brown. So just to give you an idea of what we're about to get into, what this paper looks at and what this astrobite looks at is this question of how good are humans at identifying gravitational lenses versus machine learning. Hmm. Yeah. Human versus machine, I guess. Probably most of you unknowingly have done something similar to what they're doing in this study. So if you've ever heard of reCAPTCHA, basically where you end up getting a question maybe for some Google security thing and it asks you to identify all the traffic lights. Yep. You're basically feeding into this database that ends up training these AI and machine learning algorithms to be able to pick out these things in images. And similar to how Google uses this and how they want us to identify these traffic lights that we don't care about, <laughs> um, 
Astronomers really want to be able to use AI and machine learning to find gravitational lenses in their data without actually having to use humans to do all of the classifying. Because as you can imagine, that would be a lot of images for humans to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. And so now that these computers are taking over a lot of this identification process in these, you know, in identifying gravitational lenses, humans are increasingly playing the role as trainers and work checkers for these models to figure out whether or not they're accurately identifying gravitational lenses. And given how machine learning is a bit of a black box, we need to know what humans are good at identifying to figure out where our machine learning algorithms are falling a bit short when compared to humans. Right, because I guess there are a couple of questions here. Your goal with an AI algorithm could be to do as well as humans do, or your goal could be to do better and to try and remove the biases that you introduce in doing human-only classification, identification of these lenses, right? Yeah, exactly. There are a couple of different questions you can answer with this. So how well are humans picking up different features? How well does the machine learning replicate it? Does it do better in different areas? Basically, you could keep going with these questions. But in order to even answer them, we first need to see what humans are good at to have any sort of test bed. Mm -hmm. And that's why this work and this study was conducted. What the authors ended up doing was they got 55 people and then they had around 1,500 images of strong gravitational lenses. And some of them are simulated and some of them were real data. And so... They asked these human experts, and by experts here, they literally just mean anyone that was either exposed to some astrophysics, they could be master students or even professors with decades of experience of gravitational lenses. They asked these experts to quantify how well each image was classified as a gravitational lens, and they gave them four different labels that they could do. One is certainly containing a lens. The second one is probably containing a lens, probably not containing a lens, or very unlikely to contain a lens. And so the way that the scores were measured was that after everyone classified each image, they took the aggregate scores, and then if the aggregate scores were closer to one, the objects were decided to be a lens. And if the aggregate scores were closer to zero, they were classified as not having a lens. And then presumably they gave the same problem to a neural network? Yes, exactly. And how did the neural network do compared to the humans? So that's kind of interesting. So I'll save that punchline. I'll tell you how the humans did first, and then I'll tell you how the machine learning did. So the humans are actually really reliable for identifying gravitational lenses. So we're particularly good at seeing large lenses that are really bright. And in the scenario where the experts labeled the images as certainly containing lenses, we were right about 99% of the time. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And then for the ones that were very unlikely to contain a lens, which is the lowest ranking, we were right 80% of the time. Not bad. Yeah. So we're pretty good at this. 
that sort of makes sense because you can see signal in noise, but it's hard to see noise in signal. Exactly. Yeah, and in that in-between state, basically we're 50-50. If we were like, ah, it probably has a lens or it probably doesn't, we were right about 50% of the time. And then the machine? And the machine. (laughs) The machine isn't that great and it isn't that reliable at classifying these lenses. Hmm. But we kind of knew this and they kind of knew this going into this study. But what they found that was really interesting was that humans were classifying and identifying something very, very different to what the neural networks were classifying. Even in the scores where the neural network or the machine learning algorithm, where it was ambiguous, there was no correlation between the humans and the machine learning in guessing whether or not the Images contained lenses. Yeah, exactly. And that's only for the ambiguous sample. Is that right? There's no correlation? So for the ones in between, the machine and the humans are confused about completely different images. Exactly. Yeah. That's That's so weird. I mean, that could be good, right? We could play to each other's strengths, but... That's very unexpected. Exactly, yeah. So, And it wasn't no correlation. It was next to no correlation. <laughs> so don't go well, read the paper okay. and it says there's this slight <laughs> tiny correlation. And then you said, but Kirsten said. <laughs> you make a good point, Will, in that maybe you could use humans to scoop up some of the ones you're really confident about. Machine learning algorithm scoop up a orthogonal set that you might be pretty confident about. And hopefully you've collected most of the pretty confident lenses. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so that was my astrobite, and it's really interesting. That is really interesting. So when are the machines coming for us in this specific case? Because that's actually kind of a good thing. I, I don't I don't want people to be doing this kind of work. <laughs> well, it sounds like the takeaway from this astrobite is that there's still room for humans to be doing this kind of work. Yeah. But only for a little while. I mean, come on. Machine learning isn't stopping. They're like, well, I guess, I guess that's as good as it's going to get. <laughs> I guess we're just going to stop developing. I don't know. When it comes to images and things, I always just think of the machine learning or AI generated images of people's hands and teeth Mm. where they've got like layers of teeth and stuff. I don't know. I feel like machine learning has a long way to go. They fixed that. Now the diffusion models can actually get hands right. But not all the lenses, it sounds like. (laughs) 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 You'll have to give us the update in five years, Kirsten. Definitely. Thanks very much, Kirsten, for that astrobite. Of course, yeah. And now it's time for our luminous lensing lullaby of the lengthy fortnight. All right, close your eyes. like i was at the beach with like some sort of wind chimes mm. that was great what's perplexing me is there was that staticky bit in the beginning that sounded maybe diffuse in space and then there were individual detections or stars in an image something self-contained yeah it sounds like almost like a some sort of nebula structure that has like 
I don't know, but also with stars in the background. So that's my guess. Some sort of nebula with stars. But we started in the middle. Ooh. We didn't start on the edge. Because that's the staticky bit is the, like, gas. Yeah, the waves. Yeah. Well, okay, I'm associating them as waves. Sure. But the wave-sounding things. Yeah. Yeah. Together, the two of you pretty much got it. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. It's a sonification of an image. The sonification starts at the center and works its way radially outward. There's diffuse emission and there are point-like stars that are combined. This is a really cool image. I'll show it to you all in a second. But maybe my favorite sonification of all time, what you're hearing is a composite of the stellar system V404 Cygni rendered in x-ray from swift and chandra that's the diffuse emission you're hearing and optical light those are the stars that you're hearing from the digitized sky survey okay the x-ray observations almost are meant to sound like waves on a shore like you said kirsten and the optical data is the surrounding stars what's really cool about this system it's a binary consisting of a nine solar mass black hole and a roughly solar mass stellar companion. That's really weird. And that makes it a microquasar, <laughs> which is rare. <laughs> Material from the star is getting pulled into an accretion disk around the more massive black hole. And that accretion disk gets so hot that intermittently it emits soft x-rays. Wow. On top of all that, the x-ray emission has illuminated through light echoes these spectacular surrounding rings of dust which have revealed that the system has actually gone nova a few times in the past whoa and submitted these dust shells into the environment that you can only see because it's an x-ray transient Okay. That is mind blowing. You're you're teasing us at this point. I want to see the yeah, I want to see the image. The yeah, 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 yeah. Pixar it didn't happen. This thing is crazy. Okay. Show it piece by piece. So this is X-ray from Swift. Wow. That is so cool. That is unbelievable. Okay. X-rays from Swift. And then it'll show x-rays from Chandra. Oh, I see. So it like starts again from the center. And now it's doing the Chandra on Mm -hmm. top. And then in optical light, you don't see that emission at all. You don't see the the dust rings at all. Right. That makes sense. Sweet. Wow. Really, really well done. Who made this? This is Chandra Observatory uh, in collaboration with System Sounds, Matt Russo, of course. (laughs) Of course. Of course. We got to get him on this show sometime. (laughs) It's only a matter of time. Yeah, so this is a microquasar. It's an X-ray transient. It's a nova. It's interesting for a million different reasons. And I highly recommend you dig more into that system after the episode. Really great. Thanks for bringing that space sound, Alex. Good one to cap out your space sounding experience on Astro Soundbites. Thanks very much. And now it's time for your Astro Bite, Will. Will is going to tell us about the glasses worn by some of our earliest ancestors. 
Does does that analogy work? Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this astrobite is called Meet the Great Great Grandparents of Galaxy Clusters by Rowan Hager. And the paper was written by Takahiro Morishita, and it's been accepted to the Astrophysical Journal Letters. Now, this paper is about early results from the GLASS JWST observing program. And this is the eighth paper in that series, though the series continues. GLASS, is that an acronym? It's all capitals, but I haven't been able to find anywhere on their website what it stands for. So I think they just call it GLASS in all caps. GLASS. You just have to say it a little louder. Yeah, you have to yell it. (laughs) And so in their early James Webb results, they are reporting on one of probably the oldest known galaxy protocluster. So this discovery is fabulous. And I want to give you some idea as to how they went about doing this analysis, but also some background on what a protocluster is. So let's start there. At the largest scale, we think the universe is this cosmic web. It's it's still a mystery exactly how these things form and evolve, why we get the filaments which connect nodes and where the galaxies form and how galaxy clusters come to be. But it's pretty well agreed that this is the large-scale structure of the universe, even larger than the superclusters. And the protoclusters are a class of objects that are early galaxy clusters. We believe they will form into galaxy clusters because they're made of galaxies, but they tend to be a lot smaller than galaxy clusters we know of today, even smaller than the Milky Way. Is this just an arbitrary mass threshold cutoff between a protocluster and a fully formed cluster? I I think you give it too much credit. I don't think it's that well developed of a definition. I think this is... We saw a thing, it looks like a galaxy cluster, but it's really old, so it's not quite there yet. Got it. It's possible that the cluster is not virialized, so the orbits of the galaxies in the cluster are still taking shape. They're still not randomly organized in a way that a galaxy cluster would be today. But don't quote me on that, because that's, that's sort of just my best guess. Okay. So in this paper, what they discovered is a protocluster at a redshift of 7.89, which is about 650 million years after the Big Bang, at the universe being 5% of its present age. It's so absurd. (laughs) It is absurd. Even more absurd is how they found this. Now, the, the GLASS JWST observing program is led by Professor Tomasu True, who is a professor at UCLA, and the goals are to understand reionization and distribution of gas and metals around galaxies as the universe evolved. And the target that they've been looking at for this campaign is the Abel 2744 galaxy cluster. Now, Abel is pretty close by comparison to this really distant one. It's at about redshift of 0.3. So that's about 10 billion years after the Big Bang. So it's still super far back by any means, but it's not early universe. And it's also a really great strong lenser. So I might have missed this. Are they looking at 
this cluster and the surrounding areas to look for lensed systems in the background just serendipitous detections or they already knew of these lensing systems and they're following up on them through JWST? This protocluster was discovered. So it was never detected before. Wow. But okay. the fact that Abel 2744 is a strong lensing foreground galaxy is well known. Hubble's investigated it. Spitzer has investigated it. Ground base has investigated it. So they knew what to look for. Got it. And it's not like it's a huge swath of the sky they have to survey. But yeah, they didn't know exactly what they would find. And on JWST, they're using NearSpec, which is the near-infrared spectrometer. And... The benefit that's taken advantage of by the fact that ABLE 2744 is a gravitational lens is the fact that it magnifies the background. So you have this incredibly distant galaxy cluster, so distant that almost no light would ever get to us. But because it's lensed, now we actually see enough light where it's actually possible to do spectroscopy. Enough light that you can spread it out into the bands and get enough detections in each bin to actually make a measurement. That is the craziest thing that you've ever said. Oh, oh really? <laughs> we don't spend enough time together. You, you should hear some of the things I say. <laughs> no, just the fact that they can actually get spectra of something that early in the universe means that gravitational lens is super strong like it's magnifying a lot to the point where you can get some sort of spatial resolution mm -hmm. that's crazy absolutely this is an unbelievable detection by every measure but it's the fact that it was lens that makes it possible i have two questions for you will my first one is what is required in order to say these are all members of the same protocluster mm. rather than disparate high redshift galaxies sure well in this case because they took spectra they have a really good idea of what the redshift is of these galaxies. There were specific lines that were detected, so they could measure the redshift. So they're all at exactly the same distance, and spatially, they're within 60 kiloparsecs. Oh, okay. For reference, the Milky Way is about 30 kiloparsecs across. So to get a chunk of galaxies, it's 60. They're, they're part of the same stuff. And then my second question was, they got spectroscopy, but at a redshift of 7 to 8, what can you really say about the properties of the galaxies in the protocluster? Something. I I don't want to try to oversell it, but they didn't just stop at, you know, we use the spectroscopy to measure redshift precisely. They did make some measurements about the metallicity and the possible evolutionary track of these galaxies. But I don't want to say more than I, I really know, so I think I'll have to leave it at that. Okay. So here's something really cool. When the paper was submitted and when the astrobyte was written, there were six of these background galaxies that were detected. Since then, they actually discovered a seventh. So they've amended the paper. The paper now reflects the fact that there are seven in this protocluster. And like I said, at the same redshift within 60 kiloparsecs, that's concluded to be a protocluster. How did they find the seventh galaxy? You know, it didn't say in the paper. I think they just amended it to reflect the fact that one more was discovered. I noticed it because I was checking the submission to the archive and it said like in the most recent revision amended to reflect a seventh discovery. That's so cool. It, it is absolutely cool. So this is ongoing. And for what it's worth, this 
cluster would have a really low mass, only about 40 billion solar masses, which compared to the Milky Way, which has about a trillion solar masses, is small. And so it's a proto-cluster, it's still evolving, and perhaps somewhere out there in space it has evolved to a full-on cluster or merged into a galaxy today. Who really knows? But we won't know about that for a long, long time. <laughs> so I know that you said that they're probably virialized, but did they comment on the likelihood that they could all merge into one giant galaxy if they're that small in mass? Uh, okay, I want to clarify. Looking at the paper, they said the system is likely not virialized. Mm. So their measurement of the velocity dispersion of the protocluster is probably inaccurate and should be taken with a grain of salt. Their words. I guess that's part of why it's probably a protocluster is that it, it's probably not virialized, but I don't think they could get at this stage accurate enough measurements to know for sure. And is this the highest redshift protocluster we've discovered to date? It is. That's very cool. Yeah. And recently, James Webb detected a really ridiculously old galaxy at redshift of 13, blowing out of the water the previous record at 11. <laughs> so, and that, and it's like every week there's going to be another, oh, the new oldest galaxy, the new oldest galaxy. Right, so right. it just, it doesn't stop. And for what it's worth, a redshift of 13 is something like 300 million years after the Big Bang, which really gets to the bleeding edge. It, that may be the furthest possible. Yeah, that's just insane. It's just incredible, the data that we're getting in now. Absolutely. Well, thanks very much, Will, for that astrobite. You're welcome. Let's start with our one-sentence summaries, starting with Kirsten. Yeah, so here's mine. Although machine learning has made significant strides over the past decade or so, their eyes still don't have the correct prescription just yet. So <laughs> they still need help from their human counterparts to classify gravitational lenses. Nice. And well, what about yours? Between the naturally occurring gravitational lens caused by a cluster of galaxies and the artificial lens of JWST, we are able to detect the farthest and oldest protoclusters ever. When you describe it that way, in terms of just a series of different lenses compounded on each other, really makes me worry about observational bias. <laughs> that's fair. Okay, we have time for a couple of minutes of discussion. I wanted to start here. Are lensing studies just another piece to a pre-existing puzzle, or are there systems that we can only study through lensing? Oh, I think that there are systems that we definitely can only study through lensing. I mean, Wills is a great example. There is no mm -hmm. way, okay, maybe there is a way that we could see that, but probably not as in-depth of a study. Like, could they get spectroscopy on something that wasn't lensed? I doubt it. Yeah. Highly doubt it. Let me ask my question another way. Is lensing just probing a phase in time in evolution of objects or systems that we already know about from other complementary studies? Are there systems that we don't know anything about save for the data that we get from lensing? Ah, maybe microlensing events because they're transitory. Yeah. And they're sporadic. They're unpredictable. Do they probe different exoplanet populations to the other detection methods? There is some overlap, but for example, like when you're thinking about trying to find an Earth-like planet around a Sun-like star and a 
habitable zone. So basically trying to find Earth. That is the prime area that microlensing probes. Or at least that's what Roman will do. But yeah, so it does definitely add to detections and it doesn't overlap very much with other methods of detection Mm -hmm. for sure and then what about dark matter what fraction of our current understanding of dark matter is derived from lensing studies what dark matter that's a great question like the bullet cluster that characteristic system where you see the two systems passing through each other and the dark Mm. matter gets dragged behind that's only derived or inferred through lensing right so there were two discoveries. There was the discovery that there's dark matter within the galaxy, rotation curves, and the discovery that there's dark matter in the galaxy cluster. And I think that was lensing. And I think that was Zwicky's discovery. Mm. But let me just confirm that. No, I'm wrong. Either way, it is something that pops up often when you're talking about galaxy clusters because it wouldn't make any sense for... Basically, the amount of galaxies that you have in any given galaxy cluster to be able to produce that strong of a lens, at least for the strong gravitational lenses, without having a significant amount of dark matter. So it's definitely connected and you can definitely learn about the mass of the dark matter just from considering lenses for sure, because you've got something to check it against. So what it sounds like is, correct me if I'm wrong, lensing best probes the highest mass scales, massive galaxy clusters, and the lowest mass scales, like the smallest exoplanets you wouldn't be able to detect any other way. That's what it sounds like to me. That That's an interesting conclusion. I was not expecting you to go there. To clarify about dark matter, the discovery... The rotation curves of galaxies, that discovery of dark matter in galaxies had nothing to do with lensing. The Mm -hmm, discovery mm -hmm. that the galaxy clusters were more massive than could be observed also had to do with the virialization of the galaxies, not Uh. on lensing. But lensing follow-up studies from strong lenses due to galaxy clusters were part of the key to convincing the world that this was actually true. That there wasn't some you know misunderstanding in the way that things were orbiting. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. So it's it's critical to the understanding of dark matter. It's absolutely. It's just not part of the discovery history. Yeah, and I imagine that it constrains the mass way better than having mm. any one method. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Okay. So maybe complementary pieces of the puzzle, but maybe at the extrema of the the mass scales of the universe. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course, there was the very famous observation in 1919 during the total solar eclipse of the bending of starlight around the sun, which was one of the confirmations that this was even possible, that we could observe gravitational lensing at all. So in that case, it was kind of quite close to home and people still make those observations during eclipses. That's crazy. That's so cool. It, It really is. There's great science to be done during eclipses. Just putting that out there, there's a total solar (laughs) eclipse in North America next April, about a year away. If you don't have plans, if you're not thinking about it in the back of your head, put in a little bit of thought on how you'll get into totality. It's worth it. It's amazing. Oh, listen, I, I just have to drive like an hour north. 
So are you inviting us all to stay with you? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's have a ASB like reunion or something. Alex, you're invited too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I've been looking at tickets for my flights to the Path of Totality in 2024 too. The thing that I would really like to see is the analysis of what the percent chance of clear skies is mm. in the Path of Totality because it goes from Texas all the way up into like Montreal, into into Canada, New Brunswick. I wonder like if I go north in April, you could get snow on the ground. Sometimes you get better skies there, but it's iffy. If it's a warmer spring like we've had this year, then you could get a lot of humid conditions. Whereas in Texas in April could already be swampy. Who knows? Uh, Texas has pretty clear skies almost all the time. Even East Texas? Yeah. I think so, yeah. All right, so maybe I go to Texas. All right, I have one more question about lensing. Y'all could do your planning (laughs) for the next eclipse on your own time. What are the next biggest advancements in our studies of the lensed universe? Is it technological? Is it theoretical? I mean, what's going to push us to the next frontier? You've heard of Project Starshot, right? Because I'm waiting to launch Project Lensshot. Just fire out our lenses and we could probably do even better. Lens shot. This is, for the record, something you've made up. Yes, just now. Perfect. Okay. Kirsten, what's your answer? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. With JWST, I feel like it's going to be in the theory. and, And I think that we're going to make a lot of science advancements in general before we even need to have another better JWST. So... That's where my bet is because we've just got so much interesting data. And so we need theorists to get on it, you know? (laughs) Brilliant. Cool. Yeah. I also wonder the extent to which the Verruben Observatory is going to be able to find some of these short duration lensing phenomena Mm. that will tell us more about how it happens at the smallest scales. Mm -hmm. Maybe that'll push some uh, revisiting the theory as well. Well, that's a really great point with Rubin and with Roman because they're survey telescopes it might be possible to detect many more weak lensing events and add to the population studies. So I think people are looking forward to that. Yeah. So cool. Okay, well, there's a lot to be excited about in the future. This was a great episode. Thank you both for teaching me a lot about lensing at many different scales. (laughs) That concludes episode 72, A Trip to the Optometrist. Remember to eat your carrots, take a break from screens every now and again, and pick out the lenses that are both going to teach you about the high redshift universe and frame your face. And if not even a strong pair of lenses does the trick for you, I have good news. You can learn all about our universe through sound by checking out our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, and Audible. If you want to learn more about the astrobytes we talked about today, you can find them linked in the show notes and explore all of our many astrobytes out there on astrosoundbites.com. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Are you hearing that annoying grinding going on outside? Nope. Okay, great. So here's something really cool. 